This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Watch the Atheist Experience live Sundays at 4:30 p.m. Central. Visit tiny.cc/ytaxp and call into the show at 512-991-9242 or connect to the show online at tiny.cc/callaxp. It's time to get sexy on secular sexuality. Secular Sexuality, the ACA show staffed exclusively by ethical. My name is Christy Powell, and I'm joined again tonight by our co-host across the pond, Phoebe Rose. Well, hello there. I'm ceding my throne to you, Tate. Uh-huh. <laughs> and back with us tonight is one of our very first, one of my personal favorite guests on this show. Uh, welcome back, Lily Bacon. Thank you so much, Happy. Well, tonight's poll, we, which we have running in the live chat today, it asks, so does a broad definition of Mali... Start that again. Does a broad definition of marriage devalue its meaning? Bit of a tongue to that one, but you can weigh in in the live chat, as I have said, or the result, and the results will be uh, announced towards the end of the episode. But in the meantime, we're exploring the world of marriage equality. So give yourself, so give us a call with your stories and questions at 512-991-9242. Or you can call in via the internet at tiny.cc slash call S-E-X because the show's coming up right now. It's been a while. So for yeah. folks who are unfamiliar with the uh, the times that we've spoken before and, and a little bit about your background and everything else, uh, let's give them a chance to meet you by finding out what's got you turned on this. Oh, okay. Um, well, vaguely. Yeah. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, I hosted a brunch for about friends, uh, a bunch of whom are members of my extend poly uh, Slaskin, and I decided I wanted to make bagels from scratch. Damn. All right. The kneading and the boiling and the baking. Yeah. Uh-huh. weighing everything out by grams and they were amazing <laughs> they were like new york bagels with the chewy texture and it was unbelievable so yeah very turned on by bagels at the moment <laughs> i mean congratulations i uh, i worked in a bakery all through college uh and you know would sometimes come in at like midnight uh and be working the dough and i'm not gonna lie when you're alone in a dark kitchen i mean it's a it's a, it's a very like sensual experience is all i'm gonna yeah. say about it uh, and in the course of it, I discovered that uh, one of my partners has definitely got a kink for mean dough and apron. So there you go. Yeah, that so... was a new piece of information. <laughs> uh, gonna use that. <laughs> Learning so much about life and love. Uh, Phoebe, wh- what's got you worked up this week? Well, this the occult. I've been researching the occult this week because you know, well, we all have to have different interests, and you know, this week it was more of the occult. I mean, you can mm-hmm. find that out on Sunday a bit more as to why I was researching the occult when you watch the non-profits but yeah it was the occult this week and i've been delving into you know the wonders of you know ouija boards and svengali dolls and you know just finding out well 
what's beyond in the minds of some people it's not beyond in my mind because you know skepticism and you know questioning but you know <laughs> yeah the occult this week fair enough yeah i uh, i'm definitely just gonna jump right into the interview and not spend any time talking about how distracted i am now by the fantasy of like demonic dough uh that's a kink i also did not know about myself so moving right into it I, uh, I guess I'll, I'll say here that, uh, Lily, I mean, you were one of the first people that I personally invited to be on this show because after meeting you online, I really admired a lot of your posts. And uh, some of the things that you were saying challenged me as this very inexperienced, like kind of uh, trying to learn about sexuality therapist. And I wanted to kind of share that with the world a little bit. Uh, so Aww. can you walk us through a, a little bit of your history growing up and, and sort of how you yourself came to view what I'm going to call like the rules of, of love and sex and relationships? Sure, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, in some ways I had a rather weird childhood. Um, my parents were very young when they had me and they were hippies. And uh, the you know when they split up when I was three, Beatles had just gotten back from India. And so... Uh, so uh, it was very chic for uh, youngies to go exploring Eastern, uh, you know, philosophy and all that. Mm -hmm. So when my parents split up, my mom and I went off to an ashram in Southern India. And, um, you know, I was three, I was a tiny kid. And I spent a lot of my childhood back and forth between Austin, Texas and Southern India. At the same time, my dad went on a journey of his own uh, that led him um, circling back to the Judaism of our ancestors. And uh, he went off to Israel and met my very French, very Jewish stepmother, fell in love, got married, and went and lived in Paris my entire growing up. So my, my growing up was evenly split in Austin, Texas, Paris, and Southern India, which is a weird growing up for sure. It's a pretty unique triad, uh, all is. with like yeah. notably different notions around uh, marriage and, and marriage what and love and sex should and look appropriateness like. And and, you know, mix in that I had, a, you know, for lack of better term, a Hindu mother and a Jewish father, which I jokingly say makes me a Hindu. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, and they came at both of those directions through being counterculture hippies in the 1960s in the United States. Um, so that informed, you know, the whole free love and everything, because they were very young when all this went down and um, very much in the age to explore that whole thing mm -hmm. uh so yeah it definitely affected how i grew up and the messages that i got and uh you know then flash forward uh i mean you know just big old slut naturally just <laughs> just who i am very happy in my sexuality always have been but i um met the man that would become my husband when i was 19 and uh we married when i was 24 and uh had a couple kids and we we did ourselves a, a really gentle 26-year monogamous vanilla marriage. And um, there came a point where I had outgrown it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in my mid to late 40s, I was pretty antsy and not filled and all of that. Um, so trying not to throw the baby out with the bathwater because my now ex-husband, uh, you know, spoiler alert, now ex-husband, uh, <laughs> was just the sweetest, gentlest soul in the world. Uh, but I was running absolute rings around him in, in energetically in a lot of ways. And mm -hmm. 
mm -hmm. I more sex, more romance, more adventure, more excitement, more more everything. So at one point, uh, a, a dear friend happened to mention something about her being polyamorous. I had only just mentioned that concept to my husband. I bumped into it somewhere. And uh, when our friend started talking about how well that was serving her, uh, it was like big light bulbs went off. So we wound up in marriage counseling with a poly-friendly therapist. Which I don't uh, imagine was easy to find. Actually, in Austin, it was not difficult. <laughs> I was really... I hear that a lot about surprised. Austin. I've got to go to yeah. this place called Austin. I hear all these great things about how wonderful yeah. and progressive it is. I mean, I'll tell you what, their therapists are top-notch. There you go. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, I, I, I went into the therapy and couples therapy basically saying, look, we're either going to open this marriage or we're going to gently dissolve this marriage. What we mm. are not going to do is keep the status quo. That was my agenda, my boundary with it and uh, the therapist said I can help you both I have experience with both mm -hmm. so we attempted the open the marriage thing which I mean it in some ways it worked I think you know my ex-husband is inherently a pretty monogamous person uh, but he didn't he's also a very non-jealous person and didn't have a problem with me having more and then I fell in love with somebody in a really like the first time I'd fallen in love since I was 19 and here I was 48 and mm. um, it was powerful and I really quickly realized yeah I'm I'm a different person now I should probably <laughs> not be in this marriage and uh, so you know we gradually gently uh, separate and divorced and I've dived deeply into polyamory and into kink at the same time as a two-pronged uh, thing and uh, which was interesting and I don't necessarily recommend that but that was my path um, and I've been poly ever since. I've never looked back uh, on that. I, you know, for me, I can tell you that uh, monogamy does not serve the way that my heart is built. It just doesn't. And mm -hmm. I have no problem with monogamy, by the way. There are people who are built for it. It's what really serves them and more power to them. Great. But that's that's just not how my the architecture of my heart works at sure. all. Sure. Yeah, the prescriptiveness of it all. Yep. It sounds like you gave monogamy a very good test drive, though. Oh, I <laughs> and I was really good at it. You know, 26 years, not even a tiny bit of cheating. And in fact, that was part of how I understand myself to be poly. I don't cheat. Mm -hmm. So if I am tempted to be with somebody else, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sneak. I can't do that. I'm not built to be able to do that. It's always going to be transparent. Basically, you want to you, you want to play poker against me. I have no poker face and I cannot keep a <laughs> secret. So, yeah. I, I appreciate that, that identity notion because we so often think of uh, cheating as something that is exclusively the realm of like poor morals or, or just mm. being a weak-willed person. And, you know, sure, don't lie. Don't, you know, take the person that you love the most in the world and make them a promise that you're not going to honor. And I, I think we can all come around and agree with that notion. Mm -hmm. But this idea that it's just about somebody's constitution, their willingness to be honest, particularly when they may have been on some level coerced into making that long-term monogamous commitment, it, things can get very dicey very quickly is all I mean to say. Yeah. And, and I don't really think it's so much coercion usually. I think 
think it's that uh, monogamy is the societal fault and it's unquestioned most sure, of the right. time. And again, I have no problem with monogamy. I have a serious problem with unquestioned, unexamined monogamy. Mm-hmm. Examine your heart. Figure out what actually works for you. Make, make a, uh, an examined decision. The unexamined life is not worth living, you know, that whole philosophy bit. Um, yeah, this is part of it. This is one of these really major life-impacting choices, and it is a choice. Maybe take a look at it and see what actually works for you. <laughs> so I just wanted to ask, do you think that societal changes around sex and gender are bringing along non-monogamy as well? I definitely think they're all sort of part and parcel and mixed together um, because once you question one thing, you might want to question the rest of them too. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm seeing it used to be that uh, you would get folks that were not gender questioning. They had that. They hadn't looked at that yet, but they were questioning other things, and they would wind up being poly as part of that. And then recently it has started to be gender as one of the things to be questioned as well. And we're seeing more and more of that within poly circles, which I think is lovely. Yeah, I definitely think that it's uh, it's interesting that when as soon as we start talking about something like uh, gay marriage or some of these other major societal changes over the last uh, couple of years, one of the immediate responses is that slippery slope notion. Mm-hmm. And like, well, if we start here and I I always reject that out of hand, but I do have to recognize that if you live a worldview that is, this is the way that it's done and it's completely prescribed and you're not allowed to question anything, then yeah, even pulling on one single thread does start to open up a lot of possibilities that you might not have otherwise have thought you would ever find yourself exploring. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and that really is what it comes down to for me is question everything. What's <laughs> what's the downside of getting to know your yourself better? Yeah. I, well, I don't want to try and force one specific narrative or, or draw too straight of a line, but how do you feel that having that sort of varied upbringing and being exposed not just to one worldview or two worldview, but multiple ideas of how to love and how to commit to people, how did that empower you or, or impact you in terms of being able to ask these questions? I mean, I think it was just uh, the way that my parents, um, they were so accepting of me in terms of my my choices about a lot of things. Um, For example, it's my father who's Jewish, not my mother. Judaism is a matrilineal religion, which Mm -hmm. Jews are very practical. They want to know whose kid is this. And you'd know who the mother is. Sure, we can lock that in. The father, you know, I mean, you're taking the mother's word for it. So so the Jews being very practical decided that how do you decide who's a Jew? Which mother did they come out of? Okay, very practical. (laughs) But because my father is my Jewish parent, not my mother, that means I don't have Halakhic obligations. I get to be as Jewish as I want to be and no more. Nothing is imposed on in my participation in Jewish home life. And I do participate. I find some of the rituals really lovely and calming and connecting and all of that. But unlike my half-sister, I don't have to obey any of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and you know, there were points in my growing up where being exposed to little Baptist neighbor kids and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And um, my parents were perfectly comfortable with going to church with the little Baptist neighbor kids because the little Baptist neighbor kids' parents really wanted to take me to church, <laughs> which of course had to do with they thought they were maybe saving my soul. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, I mean, I remember being seven and uh, being um, having a conversation with a Baptist preacher after a church 
church ceremony in which he had tried to convince me that I should bring my parents back next week because otherwise we were all going to hell. And I was seven. That's a he pretty heavy seven. burden. It Whoa. Is. And <laughs> I really distinctly remember looking at him and just kind of going, nah. <laughs> like <laughs> I just rejected the concept out of hand. I had enough exposure to other religions to know that there was more than one thought about that. And, you know, that just because he says it's this way doesn't mean it is. And I mean, mm-hmm. I was pretty well grounded as a individual thinker really early. And I absolutely credit my parents with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when my, you know, 26 year marriage was shifting into open marriage and then dissolving, and then I was moved polyamory, I didn't get a lot of pushback. I got a little here and there, mm-hmm. not really from none from my father whatsoever. Um, my mother, a little tiny bit, but that had to do with the way she felt about my ex-husband. They're still so close. They refer to each other as outlaws instead of laws. Um, the, the two of them are about to take a trip to Peru together because they, I mean, he's still family and sure, they all yeah. still feel that way about him. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, my mom gave me a little pushback because she felt like I was being disloyal to my ex-husband who she loves. Um, but then she figured out how to parse it. My mom's an astrologer. So she went and looked it all up in my chart and she found the <laughs> spot in my chart in which Lily has to be kinky and Lily has to be Polly. It says so right here in the chart. Well, and I mean, so long as uh, the star chart agrees, then, yeah. you know, what, <laughs> well, what did any yeah. of the rest of this even matter? <laughs> exactly. And But that's how mom processes the world. Sure, yeah. That's how she makes order and logic and make sense out of it. And so she found a way to see that in a way that allowed her to accept me. And um, she adores my current partners and um, has just been very supportive. The only pushback I got really from family was my younger sister, who I'm very close to. And um, her complaint was, well, when you come visit, don't bring any of your boyfriends because how could I explain that to my kids? Well, maybe talk to your kids? Yeah. (laughs) Have a conversation? They were very small at the time and she had some concerns about that that was it's been about 10 years mm-hmm. since i went poly and uh and there was no coming out because i i'm just like wide open about everything so <laughs> they all knew from the moment the thought entered my head in the first place so <laughs> no coming out uh but my sister's issue and i understand it in retrospect was she was um in in the throes of raising three small children pair of twins and a single and um i've been through that my kids are 29 and 26 now i remember what it is to raise small kids one good thing about monogamy it's pretty good for the raising of small children actually the inherent stability of monogamy is designed for the raising of small children it actually works pretty well but and however you can also raise small children in small fan groups committed is the issue sure. not the number of consistency and that that can aspect of it thing sure absolutely but she was being protect of the family unit and didn't want drama entering the family unit realm. Mm-hmm. And that has completely shifted over the last 10 years. Her kids are teenagers now. And she's like, whatever, when are you coming out there with this boyfriend or that boyfriend? Yeah. I want to be <laughs> so a uh, very different attitude. But I mean, in general, I got a tremendous amount of support. And I really do think you're right that a lot of my worldview comes from my somewhat unusually expanded childhood. Mm-hmm. So, But I wanted to touch 
touch on something. You talked about how it was nice and gentle for you to come out. But the idea of people policing what isn't isn't acceptable as a romantic or sexual relationship, well, that's agricultural in its age. Mm -hmm. But why do you think some people are just quite so aggressive in enforcing these more than other people are and these norms and trying to get other people to slide into their boxes? Well, I I think it's a they feel threatened. That's a big part of it. Okay, there's two things. Threatened, they feel jealous. Mm. I think that's a meaningful, like, overlooked (laughs) component. Not one that people are going to admit to, but I think is very true. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt what you were saying. No, monogamy is hard. It, It just is. And if you've not been given the thought that it could be um, an option, and then you find out, you know, when you've been 30 years into a, a monogamous marriage, and suddenly you hear about these happy poly people living happy lives with all these <laughs> other partners, and you're like, wait a minute, I had to like, you know, deny all of my needs and wants. And it, I, I imagine they feel jealous. I imagine they feel annoyed. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, just a theory, don't know. But well, Marilyn Monroe did say it was all about the seven-year itch, didn't she? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With regards to, I guess, uh, marriage and and sort of the monogamy that has always been associated with that idea, I I'm really curious what you feel we should be talking about as a culture. I mean. I, Thankfully, and I, I kind of can't believe that I actually have to say this, but the rights to marry uh, between races and then within genders that were laid out in Loving versus Virginia and Hodges v. Obergefell, those seem to be safely codified into law, mostly. I'm, yeah, I feel like we're hanging by a thread on a lot of rights that we thought we could take for granted five years ago. Uh, but that being said, those things being locked in, for a lot of people, that's where the fight for marriage equality ends. How does that sit with you? Well, um, <clears throat> when you told me that, that this was going to be the topic for the show, uh, I pretty much I turned to my boyfriend and said, uh, okay, so how do I, over the course of two hours, pat out enough uh, of my opinion here beyond just saying, um, you know, anybody should be able to marry anybody they want? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, that's my default baseline opinion <laughs> about marriage equality. How do I expand on that? Well, um, I think, again, we're dealing with um, a number of very conservative people, mostly, you know, pushing the Judeo-Christian agenda. That's a big part of it. And their baseline is that thing they like to chant. Marriage should be between one man and one woman. Mm-hmm. And Sometimes they'll when- throw in for life. Sometimes. Yes, sometimes, <laughs> yes. Um, and of course, then you have to you have to deal with the fact that um, a huge number of the people chanting that have divorces in their past. So mm-hmm. yep. know, hypocrisy mm-hmm. is a thing. Uh, Just look at the but, King of England. Yeah, <laughs> for example. Um, but then we have, um, when, when they say one man, one woman, I think a lot of us were sleeping on the fact, we were paying attention to the genders being mentioned there. Right. And uh, marriage equality was seen as about allowing same-sex marriages, Uh, but we were ignoring, completely sleeping on the number one man, one woman. That's part of the agenda, is you can't have more than two people in the equation in their agenda. Um, 
And again, I think it just goes to there's this feeling of anything different than what they signed up for or what they were, what they had shoved on them and didn't actually ever sign up for consciously um, is threatening. It's scary. They don't like it because it's different. It wasn't something that they were allowed to do. Um, so, you know, we get into, into that part of it. And I think we're just, since we've gotten somewhat past which genders are allowed to marry, <laughs> now we're starting to look at the number that they're the one in their chant so yeah yeah i mean i i think a lot of poly folks hear that same sort of like well whatever you want to do in your own bedroom is fine but why should i have to hear about it uh, rhetoric that that's aimed at queer folks i mean mm -hmm. that sounds not entirely different from what you were sort of saying about your sister at least in yeah. years past do you think that that's a fair comparison i i absolutely do um do i think that poly folks have it as bad as the struggle for gay equality no i sure. don't uh but i can absolutely find for you very quickly and cite situations where it was pretty darn bad where uh, long established poly partners who had raised the children with the birth parents as family units don't have legal rights when it comes to healthcare decisions about their non-married partner or their uh, their their kid who they raised from birth and you know now they're not the birth parent you know so yeah there are struggles with it for sure um, but yeah it's <laughs> I, I think again I think a whole lot of it is uh, just people not having um, the freedom to make their decisions in the first place. And I, I have to kind of empathize a little bit. I, I'm sorry if you didn't mean to cut you off, but just that notion of feeling like you have it all figured out, you know, feeling like your culture, your parents, your, you know, religious text or whatever else has handed you this guide that says, I mean, at least in my experience, like, hey, you're 17, you need to start looking around at who you want to spend the the rest of your life with and 21 like you haven't locked that in forever yet but I mean when I did marry my high school sweetheart at that young age there was a very real sense of feeling like I didn't have to worry about these questions anymore feeling like it was sort of a settled issue and that's a difficult thing to give away I can see that. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of ways in which I don't have securities now that I had in a monogamous marriage. So uh, I, as a single woman, I'm not currently married. I am single. I have two partners long term, one of five years, one of four years. Um, I am also, you know, I occasionally date um, because a third long term partner would be welcome. I think I have the bandwidth to handle it. Mm -hmm. um, but increasingly, since many of my needs are well covered by my existing partners, I'm increasing picky <laughs> at this point. <laughs> so it gets harder and harder to find uh, poten uh, good potentials. So I just wanted to ask, do you think that, well, as this is, you know, an atheist show, that we could end up with some very strange bedfellows in the campaign for, you know, poly equality as well? Because, you know, certain religious orders are very open to non-monogamous relationships. And do you think that we'll be having to, you know, get in some very strange bedfellow yep. type relationships? relationships to get this through. <laughs> I do. Um, polygamy and polyamory are wildly different things as mm -hmm. they are practiced. Um, simple definition, polyamory means many loves. It has nothing to do with the genders involved. Um, and it also doesn't have anything to do with sexuality or sex. I know a whole <laughs> lot of absolutely asexual polyamorous people who have more than one 
deeply committed romantic relationship and there's no sex act. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's a thing. Polygamy, of course, is um, the word breaks down to many wives. It's got nothing to do with many husbands. That's polyandry and there's yeah. hardly any of that going And it on basically there. doesn't <laughs> exist outside of textbooks and intellectual right. debates. Exactly. So polygamy, the problem with po- polygamy is the way that it's practiced regarding consent and age because the majority of the folks practicing polygamy are much older men with much, much, much younger women, even girls uh, who don't yet deserve the title women. And that is problematic uh, in and of itself for a completely separate reason that has nothing to do with how many people are in a relationship. You know, um, that's, that's my bottom line with it. I, when I told the, one of my partners that we were going to have this conversation, as I said, he tried to, um, you know, get me into a devil's advocate thing just to like warm me up and practice. And, (laughs) um, and his first thing, he tried the slippery slope. That was his, like, he wanted to get right into slippery slope. Uh, and he cited a person, I think it's a woman who married a dolphin. Um, (laughs) it's a thing. You can look it up. It really happened. She thinks she married a dolphin. Mm -hmm. What does the dolphin think? Who knows? (laughs) And, uh, and he was saying, well, you know, like he was taking devil's advocate, you know, um, there's going to be disorder and chaos in the streets and dogs and cats and, you know, all of that. He was, he went right there. Uh, and he cited the dolphin and I went, so? And he goes, well, that's a consent violation. I said, no, it's not. First off, nobody says she's having sex with the dolphin. You want to have the conversation yeah, about dolphin sex with the dolphin? doesn't know that anything non-consensual <laughs> is there to be consented. It sounds like she just... Like, yeah, she... <laughs> claims that she had been going to this beach uh, every day and hanging out with this dolphin. It was a wild dolphin, but it was coming to her every day. So there's its consent to be in her company. It has the option to be in her company or not. Mm -hmm. And they were hanging out together all day, every day and acting like a couple. I don't know what the sexual story was between her and the dolphin. None of my business. (laughs) Uh, And I would agree that that gets us into a consent, possible consent problem. But that she thinks that she held a ceremony that had any meaning to the dolphin or to her you know who cares what is that hurting who is that hurting if she thinks that she is lifelong committed to this dolphin no i i honestly think that that is a fair point uh it does make me wonder if the dolphin might be psychically screaming like how do i get out of here like so long and thanks for all the fish but i you know I, I really do take your point that even in some wild world where we actually start uh, moving towards that, which is honestly hard for me to take seriously, even as a hypothetical, but what would the problem actually be? How is that meaningfully damaging? I mean, maybe it goes back to that question that we asked in the poll that I uh, would encourage people to uh, weigh in on of, does it possibly devalue marriage as a concept? I've always thought of that as a personal commitment. And so Mm -hmm. it means whatever you personally say that it does, regardless of what the, you know, what the word is understood to mean by others. But it's important to notice that, yeah, worst possible case scenario doesn't really sound like a meaningful problem. Right. 
I, you know, uh, first off, I don't think that there's going to be a huge number of people marrying their cars or chairs or their cats or whatever. Yeah, I, and, I have a hard time buying that narrative. Right. I, I don't think it's... Chair. Yes, exactly. I mean, I got to say this desk chair is pretty sweet. It's a really nice desk chair, but I'm not going to marry it. Uh, but, you know, I want to marry 19 people and they all have committed to do so. They've made conscious decisions to commit to me and I to them and like it's why not who are we hurting if i want to marry 19 people and they all consent as full-on consenting adults what's the problem mm -hmm. and of course consent is the the watchword here we're still not talking about kids or um disabled people who don't have the intellectual capability of understanding the commitment and consenting to it um that's the line for me mm -hmm. other than that yeah <laughs> you know we're right back to does lily think that um we should have uh you know plural marriage yep long as everybody consents and has the intellectual capacity to know what they're getting into yeah but this is a call-in show and we do have a caller on the line we do have steven calling from arizona so let's take steven hello steven can you say hello to the panel i'm phoebe rose and you're live on secular sexuality Ooh, okay it sounded like Steven. somebody called out my name and that i was on the air i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> oh we uh, seem to be having some problems with steven at the moment we'll just give that one more go yeah can you hear us every few seconds is that normal uh you appear to be good. So, Stephen, you're live on Secular Sexuality. What would you like to talk about? Oh, I'm sorry. I keep going back and forth to you in the screen, or I apologize. Um, can you hear me okay now? Yes, it's all good. So okay, terrific. So, um, I uh, first of all, I want to say, uh, before I get into this, I know it may come across negatively, and I don't, I don't intend it to. Um, I, I'm in support of... To, to everyone's point that I've heard so far that, that consenting adults are allowed to do what they want and, and, uh, you know, statistically and so forth as far as how children are affected. Children are generally okay with what their parents are doing, whether they're LGBT, poly, what have you. They, they roll with the punches and that's just what's normal to them. So I'm not in principle against any of this, but I'm, I'm was thinking, should we have a different approach to marriage in general, whether it's it's you know two adults agreeing to go into this this uh, legal and and further contract with each other, or uh, you know many people going into this? Where and where I'm going with this, I am in a relationship where uh, it is, I guess, best described as non-romantic. Somebody I've known for 35 years. His idea. He is heterosexual. Uh, I am not. And I keep trying to explain to him that entering into a same-sex marriage is going to change how society views him. And he's not quite getting it at this point. So that's my problem to work on, not yours. But one of the reasons that we want to do this, we are planning to buy a home together, live together. We're in our 50s and we make each other happy. So we're like, why don't we do this? And I want to make sure, as one example, that he can inherit from me that he can, without a tax burden, because the way the laws are set up, there are uh, limitations to how you inherit from each other if you don't identify someone as your next of kin through marriage. Your will isn't enough, which some people don't realize. And I have a bit of money at this point. He has a bit of money. We don't want to have the government take our money. I would also point out that even in 
marriages of heterosexual couples that end in divorce or what have you, they don't always want the surviving spouse to have custody, uh, you know, or ex-spouse to have custody of their children. And it, and it all becomes kind of a big mess because even the things that we state in our wills uh, or were things that we want to do to protect each other, whether it's our estates, whether it's medical decisions, all of these things, they're not always honored, you know, and even among LGBT people, we know this from, uh, you know, if you go to the wrong state before it was national at this point, but you went to the wrong state and that state didn't recognize your marriage, your spouse didn't have any rights if you were in a car accident and went to the hospital. Um, and, and I do know, you know, people in my life who are poly, I'm fully supportive of them and these are long-term relationships and everybody's happy, but it's this legal model that, that sort of gets to be messy if something happens to somebody, they don't recognize multiple spouses. They don't, I mean, you know, and it all depends on the luck of the draw of who you get when you get to the hospital or get into one of these situations, whether it's someone who's going to be sympathetic or otherwise. So I, I hope this flows into the topic. I see you all nodding, even though I have everything muted. I see you all nodding, so I know you're getting it. But I wonder what what you think about the the whole model of marriage. If maybe there's an alternate structure, and I hate to say it that way because that was something that used to be argued back at the LGBT community when we were pursuing marriage. It was, well, what rights do you want, and why do you have to call it marriage? And you know, my response was, well, when I was a little boy, I didn't grow up thinking I want. To to be civilly united someday or domestically <laughs> partnered. I wanted yeah, to get married. And we all grow up in this culture. So so I get that. And and you know, but it does suggest to me as, at a macro level, whatever we end up calling it, and I'm fine calling it marriage, but if there isn't something else we need to look at. And and I appreciate your thoughts. And once again I'll stop talking. Yeah, I mean I just the way you're asking the question reminds me that marriage as an institution as we all sort of understand it, is kind of new and certainly far from perfect. Like my uh, grandparents lived in Louisiana and when my grandfather died, his estate pretty much automatically transferred to his oldest son and not his surviving spouse, which in their situation was okay. They were prepared for it. They had set everything up. The son was not a piece of shit and was eager to like take care of his mother but the reality is that house was more or less bought with her labor, not her husband's. And the idea that it would somehow transfer from her to her son because he has a penis is absolutely asinine. And yet that was a pretty common idea until somewhat recently and is still on the books in a lot of places. So this notion that we would be completely breaking marriage by starting to ask some of these questions, what is it? What is is it good for? I, I can't really hold to that because even our understanding and idea of it right now is, is shifting. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it really does beg the question, what makes a marriage? Is it having kids? Well, so infertile couples can't be married. Mm -hmm. Is it, um, you know, being in love? Well, lots of couples have fallen out of love. Plenty of couples were never in love in the first place. There's such a thing as companionate marriage, which is a perfectly valid thing, which is basically what Stephen, the caller, is talking about is a companionate marriage. Um, I mean, what components do you have to have to say emotionally between two people, this is a marriage? 
I kind of feel like that's none of anybody's business. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we get the spot where government goes and sticks their nose in it. So what makes a marriage? Well, there's legal stuff, and there's emotional stuff, and there's societal stuff, and social stuff. And I think it's all up for, as we were talking about before, question everything. Ask all of it. Yes, I just want to say, as someone who's very British here, I've seen enough of my history filled with the aristocratic classes marrying for titles, marrying for money and not a single one of them maybe even saw their spouse until they were at the end of the aisle but it's a private thing Stephen between you and your partner and question I have to ask is who needs to know if you're in a union in a marriage or not apart from those people that really need to know are you planning on advertising the fact that you've entered into a legal union of some description where a piece of paper says that you're now legally married are you planning on doing that are you planning on telling the world are you planning on keeping it just between the two of you and telling people on an as-needs-to-know basis. Are, are you asking or is that rhetorical? Six of one, half a dozen of the other. <laughs> okay. Well, because here's the thing. Because even for me, you know, when he suggested this, it started out as a little bit of a joke. And for me, I'm still stuck on the romantic idea of marriage. I would really like my husband to like, well, do me occasionally. You know, the idea that I'll be married to somebody who isn't, that isn't part of our marriage. There is no model for that. And so it it plays with my head a little bit. And, you know, we talked about his parents who are very conservative Fox News viewers. And he's like, Steve, my parents love you. And I'm like, they love me as your best friend. I don't know how Mm -hmm. they're going to feel about me as their son-in-law married to their oldest son. That's different. If I married your sister, they would have a different view of it. You know, as much as they love me and, and think of me as family, that's a very nice phrase. But now I really will be. So, you know, we, we do go back and forth on these things. But to, to more the, the point of the show, you know, I if I were involved in, in a polyamorous situation, I would want my family to accept all of my partners as part of the greater family in the same way. So it's it's all tricky because it's I, I'm fighting against what my cultural upbringing was and, and is to a large extent because there aren't models for these things. And at the same time, there's the logical part of my brain that's saying all the things that, that you all are saying, that adults can make these decisions. They can be as public or as private as they want to be. Why can't we just all accept what's going on? And then it gets into, okay, partner A dies. There's partners B, C, and D. Who gets custody of the children? Do partners B, C, and D all get along with each other enough that they're willing to co-parent in the absence of We'll say the keystone person who was person A because everybody has a different setup. You know, how do we create those protections in a way? Oh, oh yeah. I, I, lost I, think, we, I think we lost Stephen. Yeah. I guess I will just say very quickly before we uh, jump into the uh, uh, promo reel and, and move on with the conversation is what was said in Justice Kennedy's summary judgment in the Obergefell case. Uh, this idea that people who want access to marriage are devaluing it seems to really misunderstand these people. I, I think that, you know, as you were pointing out, Lily, that uh, and, and you as well, Phoebe, that so much of what we think of as marriage 
marriage and the importance of marriage has really historically had nothing to do with love or intimacy or connection. And so when people who are craving that idea do come forward seeking love, intimacy, and connection and want that to be recognized, that's something that we as a society need to, at a minimum, be having a conversation about and making some meaningful space for. So with that in mind, I, I hope that Stephen will give us a call back or that uh, we can talk to some other wonderful people tonight. That's 512-991-9242. Uh, but in the meantime, let's take a, a quick moment and see what's been going on around the rest of the ACA. And I've just had this horrendous day, this horrendous week, and I just flop down in there, stick on one of the reality shows on your over-the-top streaming service of choice, and I will just go, <laughs> I'm better than you. <laughs> It is said by those who know, if you walk beneath old Joe as its clock chimes, you shall fail your exams. So we did it on purpose in both of them. <laughs> it's almost been an episode of we've been bookended by religious nasties and had some quite cool people in the middle. It's been like a jerk sandwich with a lovely <laughs> filling. I'm not saying that I am instantly friends with every trans person or I have loads in common with every single trans person. There are people who are trans who that is the only thing we have in common. I f hate Ben, but because we're both atheists <laughs> and we're both trans, you know, we, we're in the same circles. The spiritual uh, faculty of our heart and logic itself is a created transcendental category created by God that we can communicate with through our spiritual energy. If that was enough word salad to end world hunger, literally. <laughs> I'd just like to say, though, to David, if you are listening to us and you do have any specialist problems um, in the area of family or property law, please seek independent legal advice. But getting back to our show, um, yes, in some ways, uh, polyamory seems to be becoming much more mainstream. Um, but does that mean that it's also becoming accepted and or, well, easier? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Um, I, we're certainly seeing more representation of polyamory in mainstream. It's almost always shown as a thruple, mm -hmm. as a three-person relationship, closed thruple. They're not dating outside. It's just the three of them in love acting like a monogamous couple, except there's one extra. And it's almost always depicted as one man and two women. Mm -hmm. So polygamy if, if it's closed, uh, it's only because this existing cishet couple has found that unicorn that's going to change everything for them. Uh, it, at least in yeah. terms of what you see on TV, which I don't love. But right. when I see something like, you know, the Connors on uh, ABC or something that I think of as being like in every, you know, suburban house in America, and I see them at least using the word thruple or having mm -hmm. a conversation about polyamory, does that, does that help and further the mission in any useful way? Or does it just make it worse? It's... It lets people know that it exists. It's like the point at which uh, in the, what, early 80s, late 70s, there was a show called Soap in which Billy Crystal played oh, a gay God. man. Okay? Yeah. So we're at that spot where we're being made <laughs> aware so that these people okay. exist. Okay? Yeah. So, okay. Here's the thing about Thrupples. <sighs> Thrupples are polyamory on hard mode. That is the mm, yeah. hardest single way to do polyamory. And yet, that's the one that the newbies all try. 
Yep. And they flame out spectacularly. <laughs> oh my God. Terrible. Uh, I'm in some Facebook groups that are very large international Facebook groups with thousands and thousands of people in them. And in a couple of these, they get used as like agony ant columns where people <laughs> write in and it's a lot of, you know, AITA, you know, questions. Uh, am I the jerk kind of questions? Um, or it'll be uh, my nesting partner, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know a lot of that and um you know hundreds of people will will respond and comment and it it really is it it feels i've got um a link to a website called unicornsrus.com i i throw that link in at least three or four times a week into these conversations because the it's the link is a website that's basically a long article that goes mm. into just why established poly people experienced poly people have a problem with unicorn hunters mm -hmm. and just why that's a problem and just how difficult thruple is as a setup um so it's just an education piece that i throw out all the time um but you know so does having it in out there in the mainstream make it more accepted sure in that people know we exist does it make it easier no the learning curve on poly is unbelievably difficult mm -hmm. um i've been doing it 10 years I think I just barely, like five minutes ago, figured out how to be reasonably good at being poly. <laughs> kind of. Sort of. Maybe. But, you know, even within, you know, my longest current relationship is a five-year relationship. And oh my goodness, we have had our ups and downs. And a lot of them have been growth, uh, personal growth issues that both of us, but I'm going to own mine, that I have really had to go through. Um uh, oh, and I, I just saw a, a comment that I should uh, try to maybe define the term nesting partner. Your nesting partner is the partner you live with. Mm -hmm. You may or may not actually married to them legally. They might be your spouse. They might not. Uh, but, you know, they could be just your cohabitation partner, nesting partner, the person you nest, cozy feathered nest. <laughs> um, we also see sometimes anchor partner uh, or primary partner primary is partner. often a term we throw around. We can definitely yeah, have some so merits or value of that idea yeah uh that that would again be part of the learning curve where you'll find that most very experienced poly people tend to shy away from primary partner because what do you have if you have a primary partner you have mm -hmm. a second or even a tertiary partner Ooh, anybody <laughs> feel like signing up to be a tertiary partner doesn't feel good <gasps> so yeah no we don't do the primary <laughs> partner thing um yeah so anyway uh yeah there's a learning curve there's a massive learning curve on poly it does doesn't get easier just because people are aware of it. Uh, but there are more resources and that's awesome. That mm -hmm. is a very good thing. For example, there are all these awesome Facebook groups, uh, some not so awesome and some fantastically awesome, <laughs> where you can ask your questions to determine who in this situation is actually the problem. The, is yeah, it... Who is the asshole in this situation? Exactly. The, the um, critical question <laughs> for every romantic argument. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, in terms of more terminology, uh, you get, um, uh, if you've got, like, for example, uh, I have a partner, uh, a boyfriend, he is married. So his wife is my metamor. 
it comes from the word paramour. Your paramour is your lover. It's a very old-fashioned word for your lover. So their other lover is your metamor. It gets shortened down to meta a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I have a fantastic meta relationship. That's a really common bit of jargon that goes around. And in the poly groups, what you often see is um, somebody posting saying, my meta is doing this terrible thing and it's really annoying the snot out of me. How do I fix it? And the answer is usually that's not a meta problem, that's a partner problem, meaning that the shared partner, sometimes called the hinge, because they're the hinge between their two partners, is not holding boundaries nicely and allowing stuff from one relationship to spill over and negative affect the other relationship. So we have these nice new resources, which is fantastic. There are books, there are podcasts galore. I probably tell you a bunch of them. Um, So it gets easy in that there is more support, but unlearning the default societal monogamy, toxic monogamy things that you grew up with in your heart and your head, whoo, that part doesn't get any easier. That is still work. And and honestly, that is a necessary part of all of this in order to make it towards some of the you know loftier peaks of, like for instance, being in a triad or having mm-hmm. uh, what we sometimes refer to as kitchen table poly where folks are comfortable talking to their metamors and having meaningful relationships beyond just that hinge partner or you know having this more expansive notion of what uh, these relationships can look like requires a lot a lot of learning and a lot of meaningful effort and i guess that is at least partly why there's something of a stereotype, I believe, around poly people not necessarily wanting to do that work or wanting to, you know, we we talked about the idea of a unicorn hunter and this notion that a couple would uh, just be looking for usually stereotypically some young, dumb, cute, readily manipulated ingenue, bisexual ingenue. uh, Just be able to to love both of them equally. and, (laughs) And she could only have sex with both of them at the same time nobody can be separate like they all have to be in the room and she can't spend any time with with you know one of them without the other one and god forbid she should ever try to date outside of their closed triad so she's just had all of her agency removed from her. Mm-hmm. And and that's a, a common enough idea when people approach polyamory thinking that it is just like monogamy, but with more people and don't actively like sort of deconstruct everything that they have learned so far about relationships. And I, I guess I uh, lay all of this out just to ask the question, do you feel like the poly community writ large, however we want to try and define that is made up of of activists, of people who are looking to sort of like queer broadly our understanding of marriage and of relationships and that are perhaps up for a fight around marriage equality. Because I, I think oftentimes there is at least a stereotype of folks preferring to sort of stick to themselves to, to have their cake and eat it too, but not necessarily uh, tear down fences or expand opportunities for others. Is that a fair criticism? I would say it is. I mean, personally speaking, yeah, I would absolutely love it if marriage equality gained legal status and um, we could all marry people because we wanted to and had examined our hearts and really made the commitment 
equipment and all of that, uh, I would love it. Am I marching on Washington? No, I'm very busy. I yeah, partners <laughs> and uh, and a full life, and you know, we're all too busy like, managing our Google calendars uh, oh and playing goodness. Dungeons and Dragons with each other to actually <laughs> get around to marching on Washington. <laughs> yep. Well, with that in mind, though, what are some of the like social and and maybe institutional barriers that that you've seen or, or maybe experienced yourself because of your multiple relationships or just your relationship choices in general in this space? I've generally been very privileged and I acknowledge my privilege. Um, I live in Austin. Living in Austin in the first place, that helps tremendously. What I mean by that is I'm not having to hide. I am absolutely out about poly every aspect of my life. Um, at my work, my boss knows, my bosses know, my teammates know. How do they know? Because I, we're doing work from home. I'm on Zoom. One boyfriend wanders in to say, you know, hey, where's the whatever? And, uh, you know, then the next day, a different boyfriend wanders in to say, hey, I'm kissing you goodbye. I got to go. And, you know, it's like, I'm not hiding anything. They know. Uh, and because I work for a very liberal company, uh, because I live in a very liberal town, everybody goes, eh, cool, and doesn't give me any grief about it. I think it could vary very different. If I lived in a small conservative town, I might have to hide more for fear of social censure. I don't. Uh, but, you know, I certainly hear people in these poly groups talking about how difficult it is to find somebody to date when you can't actually admit that you're poly and you're, you know, uh, supposedly monogamously married. So it, any attempt to date looks like you're cheating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I definitely see people struggle with that. That has not been my struggle. And I acknowledge my privilege in that regard. Um, that absolutely does help. Uh, but for me, it's like, I've had so little, such, such few times that there's been any, anything that has restricted me. I mean, um, the closest I think I've gotten to any restriction is that uh, the boyfriend who's married, his wife is not out to her family that they are poly. Uh, and it is they, they are both poly. She has a, uh, a boyfriend of seven years that she's very in love with. Um, but in her immediate family, her, her parents, her sisters, brothers-in-law, they don't know that she's not monogamous. Um, so how has that played out? Been a very few times. Um, the two of them, my boyfriend and his wife, have gone to her sister's house for Thanksgiving a couple of times. And so I didn't get to go along. Okay, well, whatever. I was with my other partner and sure. my mom and my <laughs> sisters and kids. And, you know, it, it was fine. It was a few days apart. No big deal. Um, where it comes into play a little bit more is the few occasions when her sisters have come to visit in town. And um, she goes in this little frenzy of kind of de-kinking the house, um, <laughs> getting rid of, uh, you know, any any sex toys and equipment that could, you know, that makes it pretty clear that there's a lot of sex going on in that house. Um, and things like she'll send him over to my house with a box containing some of my stuff that lives at their house, like my house slippers that live mm. at their house and stuff like that. And I kind of go, <laughs> you know, it's like, it feels a little kicked out for a second, sure. yeah. you know, but you know, whatever. She just doesn't want to have to explain whose bunny slippers those are. Okay. Whatever. Um, the funny thing that has happened is it's happened about five times now where for whatever reason I have wound up spending the night in their bed and sleeping in what is normally her side of their bed. She's been at her other partner's house or she's been sick and sleeping in the spare room or for whatever reason, I wind up spending the night in her spot. 
mm-hmm. which of course smells like her. And <laughs> I've known her for five years and we're very good friends. And that gets into my head. Yeah. And I had these dreams when I sleep in her spot. It's <laughs> happened five times now. I dream that her sisters or her mother or some combination thereof have burst into the room and <laughs> caught us. And that I'm having to explain who I am and why I'm in her space. And, you know, it's it's just, it's become a running joke now that I keep having these recurring dreams of caught by only people on the planet that don't know that he and I have a deeply committed five relationship mm-hmm. that I have every reason and right to be in that spot in that bed. Uh, but just funny that my subconscious works that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the stressors that we carry uh, and just the, the almost invisible, I mean, I don't know that I want to call that a microaggression, but that is a <laughs> specific stress that you carry as part of a minority. Well, I, if anything, it's my own subconscious doing a microaggression. Sure. Yeah, that's fair to say. (laughs) Nobody else is doing it to me, you know. (laughs) Well, you you mentioned how a lot of your your lifestyle, if we want to call it that, is is kind of uh, made possible because you live here in Austin. Mm -hmm. I I deeply relate to that. Uh, I When I was considering leaving this town, it was terrifying to think about the idea of trying to date polyamorous Lee anywhere else. And I don't know about you, but over the past year or so, I've personally gone from listening to a lot of my friends like threaten to leave Texas to actually having a bunch of people who are close to me and a bunch of clients and other folks in my life actually try and flee the transphobia and some of the other Uh safety threats that we experience in this state. Just looking at sort of the direction of the country, I mean, how how do you feel about the future of PolyRite? Well, for one thing, the folks I see who are leaving Austin are moving to other super liberal places. Right, sure. So I don't think that's going to impact that particular migration. In fact, you know, I've kind of been like, you know, I wonder what the poly scene's like in Seattle. Yeah. (laughs) I I have fished out the pond in Austin, let me tell you, you know. I'm (laughs) taking some notes here places to visit in USA. (laughs) Right. And the thing is, I mean, the dating pool is, it's only so big. Uh, I mean, that being said, there's, you know, like one of the larger poly groups uh, is a national group that has, for all intents and purposes, um, franchises in various large liberal cities. It's called Poly Cocktails. It's quite well known. And the Austin chapter of Poly Cocktails has a thousand members in it. That being said, I have already pretty much dated all the ones that could be like reasonable fits for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like this pond is fished out. So what are the other ponds like? Let's go fishing. <laughs> you know, I, I've had that thought. But um, I don't know. I mean, I I, I feel like you're you're absolutely right that it do this movement needs some for lack of a better term warriors and i kind of hate that term uh, because it is warlike and why we got to go there but it needs some activists and sure. that's gonna happen um naturally who's gonna do it the the baby pollies the young ones uh i'm deep into my 50s pushing 60 i'm tired i'm not i'm not <laughs> marching on washington um but I see lots and lots of people in their 20s and early 30s who um, are most of them not only poly, but also some variety of queer or, uh, and or some variety of uh, gender non-forming of one kind or another. And they've got to fire up their butt about marching on Washington for other reasons anyway. Throw poly in while you're at it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's how I feel about it. So I just wanted to say, do you think that it's 
much more internationally recognized now? Do you see it having an international flavor to it as well as just a U.S. flavor to it? Now? Mm, excellent question. I mean, I know that the big poly groups that I'm in on Facebook do have a lot of non-U.S. based in them. Uh, but no, I don't know the statistics. I'd be really interested to see that. Well, the last thing I wanted to ask you before we check in with our poll and, and start to look at resources and, and wrap up for the night is one that I have been really thankful to get to ask a bunch of uh, really interesting people and, and wonderful experts because of this show. And I I'm really curious to hear how you grapple with it, because I am very interested to know whether we should think of polyamory as a orientation, something that's immutable mm. about who we are as people or how we connect with the world, or if that l old label of like a lifestyle choice fits better. I've heard a uh, number of answers in between, as well as the idea that maybe everybody is poly. We just live <laughs> in a busted up culture. How do you respond to that question? Okay. I, I've, uh, I've argued this nine different ways. First off, you have to, one thing you have to understand about poly people is if you've got 10 poly people in a room, you've got 13 different ways to do poly. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, much like Jews with the arguing, the poly people with the opinions on how to best do poly, uh, there's a lot of opinions about that. Um, in terms of whether it's orientation or choice, there's variation on that as well. I think it really comes down to spectrum. Mm. That's where I go with it. Um, I think that there are people whose hearts are built to monogamy really the only way they're just commitment is their jam um, and for them commitment means that they turn their eyeballs off and they don't see anybody else and that's <laughs> it they're done um, I think that's relative rare I think there are people at the other end of the spectrum who are 199% poly and they just absolutely can't gun to the head they couldn't do monogamy would not happen and I'm not even talking about sex I'm not saying they're uncontrollable sure. sluts that's that's a complete separate issue they may also be uncontrollable <laughs> it's a co-current addition uh, nymphomania yeah. but... is a separate thing entirely right right <laughs> Uh, again, let's go back to polyamory is doesn't mean polysexual. I know asexual poly people mm -hmm. and they're valid, they exist and they're real. And it's how, it's about how does your heart work? So you've got monogamous people on one end of the spectrum and super polys on the other end of the spectrum. And then people fall somewhere in the range smack in the middle. There is something called ambiamory, mm -hmm. which means oh, I could go either way. I'm ambidextrous about it. I'm ambivalent about it. Um, boy, do I love a good etymology, uh, ambiamory. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I think that there was a point in time in which I could have flowed either way and found myself happy either side of that coin. And then I changed. And now I definitely am poly. Uh, there's even a little test that you can take that was at the beginning of a really useful book called The Jealousy Workbook, I believe mm -hmm. it is. And um, it tried to figure out how poly you are. And I came out as, woo, so poly. So uh, for me, um, I still think I could choose to lock it down if I had a good reason to do so. And I would do it well because I'm cheap. Just don't though. So. But orientation versus lifestyle choice, I, I really think the spectrum is the answer to that. And I think for those for whom they say, eh, it's a choice, I think they're ambiamorous. I think they're mm -hmm. sitting on that line and they could be happy either direction. And then you get people who say, no, it can't be a choice. It's, it's who I am am well okay those people are at further ends of that <laughs> spectrum and for so, them we should probably believe them yeah 
absolutely. So that's that's my answer to lifestyle or choice. Yeah, yes. The answer is yes. Yeah. Both, both depends where you are on the spectrum. But yes, but thinking of answers to questions, we have a poll running. <laughs> so does a broad definition of marriage devalue its meaning? We have landslide results that, you know, <laughs> dictators around the world would be pleased with. Yes, 5%. <laughs> no, 95%. We are, now, we are now the atheist community of Austin dictatorship with landslide election results. So... There yeah. you go. <laughs> Honestly, I, I did not anticipate that. I, I appreciate that notion from our audience uh, because that is maybe the only useful or I don't even know how useful it is, but maybe the only even vaguely resonant critique that I have ever meaningfully heard is that it somehow devalues marriage or makes my relationship with my wife or your relationship with your husband somehow insignificant. And I, I can't wrap my head around that. In all honesty. I think I know where that comes from. I think it comes from the thought that those poly people are just out marrying willy-nilly on a whim. Mm. Who is no. nilly and why is he nilly? Exactly. <laughs> but marriage, the actual, you know, marriage, two marriage, you know, whatever. Um, marriage. <laughs> there we go. Um, if you're getting married, actually committing with the intention of lifelong commitment. It doesn't matter how many people are involved. You are making a commitment mm -hmm. from your soul with all the intention of giving your best for as long as you possibly can. That's value. That is value for the institution of marriage. Does it matter how many people you are capable of opening your giant heart and committing to? No, it doesn't. You're still valuing the concept of that commitment. So for me, no, it doesn't devalue marriage at all. In fact, I think it values it highly because it's more complicated to marry more than one person. <laughs> so you're having to really look deep into your soul and decide if you're capable of mm -hmm. giving your best to these people, not person. So Beautifully said. Well, uh, before Phoebe starts to wrap us up for the night, I know that you yourself are not looking to march on Washington. <laughs> no. Nope. But are there are there any you know advocacy opportunities or anything along those lines that you'd like to maybe point our audience to, or honestly even just request for better treatment uh, that you want to pass on to our you know largely cis het mono audience tonight? Uh, be aware that we're not all living in triads. <laughs> yeah, please. Uh, be aware that poly people aren't necessarily necessarily about the sex yeah a lot of us are but you know, we're not necessarily <laughs> which is valid about sex it. is nice i like sex <laughs> so good. Me sakes. <laughs> my favorite thing but um but you know it's like it's poly isn't about being greedy and having your cake in it too mm. it's actually about making a really difficult um attempt to love and i mean that as an active verb mm -hmm. as many people as your heart is capable of serving well and uh, there are limits as they say love may be infinite but the calendar is not yeah fair to say well you uh mentioned that you had a uh ever growing list of uh podcasts and books and, and maybe some other resources uh, what would you encourage people watching tonight to check out Oh, um, books. Well, the classic is The Ethical Slut. Sure. Um, it, it's not my favorite. It's a little outdated in some ways. It's a good starting spot. Um, uh, personally, I prefer a book called More Than Two. Mm -hmm. It's got some backlash because uh, one of the two authors has gotten a bit me too and uh, a little bit canceled. I still think the book itself 
regardless of the author's behavior. I think the book itself is really beautifully written and a fantastic resource. Um, Tristan Taromino's got a good book called Opening Up, which is a good resource for people who uh, begin their poly journey from the position of already being in a obviously monogamous coupled relationship. So that's a good one. Um, uh, Polyca- podcast, there's Multiamory. Uh, that's a pretty good podcast. Dan Savage, good old Saint Dan. I love him. He's like my patron saint. And um, it's his podcast, Savage Love, is not by any means just about polyamory it's about all kinds of things it's a um it's a sex and and relationship advice column podcast he himself happens to be poly uh and it comes up uh often Mm -hmm. in his show but it's it's uh it's you know not the central focus it's still a darn good resource so sure yeah i uh, i'm still crossing my fingers to have an opportunity to meet dan savage i don't know (gasps) if i can retire from this podcast until (laughs) i've had that moment so i may maybe wait for a while, but uh, we actually uh, were able to interview Dedeker Winston from the Multiamory podcast about her book, A Smart Girl's Guide to Polyamory, which I will just go ahead and add to the pile as well as that episode for anybody who uh, wants to maybe explore some more of these ideas. I say, is is, is the meeting Dan Savage your come to Jesus moment, Christy? Is it your come to Jesus moment? (laughs) Yeah, no. uh, When we sat down to talk about this show, we put uh, his name and Esther Perel's name at the mm. top of a uh, of a bulletin board, and it has still not gotten scratched off. So uh, I've met I guess Esther Perel. I mean, have not yet met Dan Savage. God that would be damn it. All right. that would be a fangirl melt in a puddle of fangirl moments. Right. <laughs> well, fair enough. Oh. Uh, Phoebe Rose, let me turn it over to you for the rest. Well, of I think that's a wonderful way to start to wrap up what has been quite a sexy show tonight on secular sexuality. So, but if you want to keep up with what's happening in the world of the atheist community of Austin, you can go to our website, which is atheist-community.org, or you can email the show directly at sex at atheist-community.org, or you can email just the ACA in general at tv at atheist-community.org. But we will also be running some in-person shows, Secular Sexuality, and the other three shows that we run, that's Truth Wanted, Talk Heathen, and The Atheist Experience, will be live from the 26th of January through the 29th of January. Doors open at 6 o'clock for the Thursday-Friday shows, and at noon on Sundays. And parking is wherever you can find a legal spot once that car park is full. The ACA will not be paying for any parking tickets or towing fees that you incur for parking illegally. But if you want to keep up with more of the ACA, did you know that we have another channel where you can catch us on the Atheist Experience Network at tiny.cc slash AEN podcast, where you can even delve into the archive and you can catch things like Parenting Beyond Belief and Godless Bitches. I mean, I've watched a few of them and they're pretty good too. But there's also the Facebook group run by the fans of this show and we wouldn't be anything without our fans but if you want to go to that you can go to the facebook secular sexuality facebook group and we also have our wonderful discord which is run by the wonderful volunteers over there and if you want to join that that's tiny.cc slash acd discord but here's 
one of my favorite things that you can always go and do. You can go on over to our wonderful merchandise shop and you can buy something that tickles your fancy or, you know, helps give yourself a big old orgasm. But remember, each and every one of the ACA shows has its own special limited edition item every month. So head on over there now and get Secular Sexuality's January special. But we would be nothing without the wonderful humans that screen our calls and put this show together and moderate in our live chat. So can we all please give a big thank you to the wonderful crew. So smile, everybody. Hello there. Hello. Let's <laughs> be Samara embarrass them but it's been a wonderful wonderful time tonight but mm -hmm. my wonderful co-hosts starting with our wonderful guests what kind of thought would you like us to be left with and what would you like to say to the audience examine your heart figure out what works for it love who love love who you love uh i suppose we will leave it there yeah, yeah. Uh, i suppose i will only add uh, a little encouragement to maybe grab yourself a hot bagel or you know two or three or four like multiple <laughs> bagels if you choose and and uh, give yourself a big ol' orgasm. Or, better yet, give multiple other people <laughs> one. <laughs> Watch Talk Heathen live Sundays at 1 p.m. Central. Visit tiny.cc slash YTTH and call into the show at 512-991-9242 or connect to the show online at tiny.cc slash call TH.